Okay, friends, for those of you who listened to the last show, you uh, have the treat of hearing uh, Mr. Cade again, because we have carried him over uh, to the second uh, show for this week. And and actually, sometimes we have actually done this before, Cade. You're not the very first person. Uh, But when there's a a good call like this about issues that uh, that are are important, and I've got room on my schedule here, um, what was that? Hold on. Oh, sorry. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay, there's Kate. All right. That's Kate, right? Yep, I'm here, Mr. Coco. <laughs> well, Amy was giving me the V for Victory sign, and I thought, I, yeah, thank you. I'm just like um, Mr. Victory here. No, no, I mean time, line two. I accidentally hit Wes's line there, and so I had to put him back on hold. But uh, occasionally I've carried somebody over, especially if the topic is worth talking more about than the, what, six minutes I gave you. So um, so basically, your question then, to remind the listeners who are kind of picking this show up like a couple days later, they are, they are, um, they are, um, we've been talking about how I study the Bible, how I indicate the Bible, and uh, how I, how I, I'm, I'm having two conversations here, one by sign language with Amy and one with you. That's why I'm messing both up here. Okay, how how is it do that I um, mark my Bible in a way that is meaningful to me and helps me understand the text better? And and I've mentioned two things so far. One thing is I highlight only those kind of famous central passages that seem to be like robust and and like. Never forget these kinds of things. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, new things have come, for example. Or the first verse that I ever remember remembering was, By grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, Second, um, the second chapter of Ephesians, verse 8 and 9. So that's what I'm highlighting, all right? Fruits of the Spirit, you, somebody might want to highlight those. Okay, but I'm also marking with my pencil to highlight relationships between words and sentences and paragraphs. If the same word is repeated a bunch of times, I'll circle it a bunch of times, just so I could see, oh, this thing is repeated. There's a reason why it's repeated so often, it's an emphasis, and that will alert me to it. Uh, Sometimes I notice things that 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 uh, themes that are developed in a passage, uh, or a theme that's developed over a couple of um, chapters. I had a conversation, um, Cade, a couple of uh, weeks ago with somebody who um, took me to task on John ten, which has the passage, has the phrase or sentence in it, "My sheep hear my voice." All right, and was. Was it? Was that on the air? No, that, I don't. I'm wondering if this was even on the program. I'm not sure. Not too long ago, but, and therefore we should all be able to hear his voice too. And so he's taking exception with my concern about the the practice of hearing the voice of God, which I don't think is biblical. And this seems to be a counter uh, a, a counter to that notion. My sheep hear my voice. Of course, you know what I did, Kate. I went back to the context in the chapter to see what this figure of speech was referring to. And uh, the figure of speech, of course, is the phrase that's used of the concept in verse 6, this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them. 
Now, I've, I've worked this chapter pretty good with my pencil and my highlighter and with circling things and showing compa- so so that it helps me understand what Jesus is talking about. He is not talking about hearing any voices. He is talking about a salvific impact of the Holy Spirit on the people that the Father has given to Jesus. Now, that's the language of the text. I mean, you know, there people have different ideas about how to make sense of that, given their underlying theology about salvation. But nevertheless, that's what Jesus says, okay? What I discovered is that this idea of, quote-unquote, hearing Jesus, that we see one, two, three, four, five references to here in John 10, actually starts in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 25. Uh, Let me get there here real quickly. Jesus, six is a long chapter, three pages. Okay, John chapter 5, verse 25. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. What does he mean, physically dead or spiritually dead? He could be referring to the resurrection, but he could be referring to those who are spiritually dead, and quote-unquote hear Jesus' voice, and the consequence is they now live. Well, that kind of sounds like the point that he was making in John 10. Same language, okay? But it doesn't end there. 5.37, And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Okay, so the same motif, right, of hearing. I circle that. And I kept seeing this. So in John 10, now I have in the margin a reference of every verse leading up to John 10 that trades on this notion of quote-unquote hearing, because in every case, 525, 537, 645, 843, 847, all before you get to chapter 10, which there are five more references, and then there's one in chapter 18, verse 37. They all mean the same thing. So the motif of hearing starts in John chapter 5, continues through, and then, and then it, it crescendos in John 10. And it's clear that what Jesus is talking about is, is, is something that it, it's an, an ineffable, hard to explain, hard to describe, work of the Holy Spirit, sometimes called Jesus' voice, sometimes called the Father's voice. Clearly, God's voice, i.e., the impact of God in their life that brings them, draws them to the cross, and helps bring them across the line to make them believers. Uh, I know my sheep, they sheep, my sheep know me, and then Jesus says, um, uh, my sheep are my voice, I know them, they know follow me, and I give them eternal life. They hear, they follow, I give them eternal life. There's the sequence. So notice here in this case, I notice this pattern, not just uh, manifest in John chapter 10, but also starting in John chapter 5. And so I wrote all these verses in the margin of John 10, so when I'm having a discussion with someone, I could say, hey, look at this. This theme has John has been working on for five chapters 
and he builds up to this particular point. And that strengthens my own understanding of what Jesus means in John 10 when he says, my sheep hear my voice. So I'm just giving you an example of how I do that kind of thing. This is what I do with it. And if you looked at my Bible, there's all kinds of lines drawn from one thing to another, things circled, some things highlighted, notes here and there, question marks all over the place, okay? Because there's some things that I don't understand, and so I put a question mark there, and maybe I'll never understand on this side of the resurrection. Um, I don't know. So um, there you go. That's the best I could do over the phone right now, unless you have more questions for the sake of clarification. Yeah, I just yeah, I wanted to clarify a couple of things. Okay. Um, so first, it just sounds like that you are just a big fan of not marking permanence. You know, so you're able to change theology, change your notes, change your thoughts. Am I correct yeah, on that? Yeah, and it's it's not that my theology is changing all the time. I just right. feel comfortable erasing if I have to. Hey, what if I make a mistake in ink and I'm writing this word down and I misspell it? Oh, you can't erase that. You got to scratch right. it out. That looks bad. But you can't erase pencil. And that's the bigger time. It's not so much that my theology is changing. I just want to be flexible. If I want to erase something or I draw the wrong line to the wrong word, I can erase it and I could fix it. That's my main point there. Okay. Yeah, and then I just wanted to like clarify on what you said about like understanding a passage and, and properly exegeting. You were kind of talking with the last caller about this. Mm-hmm. Um, if like for example, I was reading, I think it was Romans eleven, um, and I came to a verse where where it where Paul said that God um, God assigns all to disobedience so that he, so that He may have mercy on all. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking. Is God is is Paul saying that God is the one who puts us in a disobedience? And so, in like, I'm not asking about that verse specifically, right? But when you approach, like, say, a hard passage, or you're just trying to approach a passage in general, for you, the key to doing that and understanding something correctly is to look at the context of the chapter, sure. the context of the book, and then the Bible as a whole, and understand themes, concepts, patterns. Mm-hmm order to apply that to a singular passage. Am I right on that? Yeah, yes, you are. There's a passage in the Old Testament in the King James Version which says that God is the author. He authors he authors um, something like prosperity and authors evil. You know, he brings this and he brings that. Well, big question mark. God authors evil? He is the cause of evil? Big question mark. Okay, you keep reading then, and you realize what God is talking about there is He brings calamity. He might bring a hailstorm and locusts or a flood or something. He will bring calamity as a means of punishment. Okay, now that's evil for the people who receive it subjectively, but He's not doing anything that's objectively evil. And in fact, more uh, modern translations have corrected that, so there's no confusion. But in in my in my Bible, I can't even remember what it says there. But I circle the word, you know, and then I write maybe the synonym that is the appropriate synonym given the context that I've just examined. And so sometimes I'll I'll upgrade the the translation for my purposes, so I understand. So so I I think I'm capturing the full sense of what the re, the writer is getting at in the passage. Okay. Yeah, so like like other translations are helpful then in like defining words and things like that. It's sure. all all kind of like integrated to understand something better. Yeah, and this is this is um especially the case if you're dealing with the King James version. 
<laughs> you know, and uh, I know they, they've got updated version without the these and thous and stuff, but here's what uh, John Warwick Montgomery said once. He said, I always use, I use the King James Version with people who are 350 years old or older. <laughs> All the rest of them I use a more updated translation. And the reason is, is language changes. Language changes. And so we have to make sure that the language that we're reading in the vernacular, the language of the people of the time, um, accurately represents, in translation, the meaning of the original words in Greek or Hebrew. Um, and so uh, that's why these n- these newer translations have a big advantage. Um, and also, the newer translations take advantage of other textual finds that were uh, were not available to those who wrote in in the case of the King James in 1516 or whatever that was, um, they didn't have all those manuscripts. And now we have a, a, a little bit more accurate take on the text, okay? So um, the other translations, though, modern, whether you have used ESV or NIV or NASB, uh, you know, or uh, RSV, these are all translations that have value. And if you're not entirely clear about one thing, see how other people have translated it and see if that helps you understand the meaning a little bit better. So that is helpful. I do have this recommendation, though, that if you you once you start with a, a you start with a good translation, in other words, a high quality translation, and right now I would say that is the NASB or the ESV. Okay, I don't actually care that much for the NIV. Sorry to my Zondra and publishers, but that's just the case. They make, in my view, too many decisions for you in the text, okay? Um, mm-hmm. And I'd rather have a more of a straightforward translation um, f- so that I can make those decisions for me, okay? Uh, and so they they just play a little bit loose with the text. NASB is a great reputation. That's what I started with in 1974, I guess, is when I really started studying the Bible. And uh, and the ESV, most recently, very good translation, too. So, but whatever you start with, don't, don't change. <laughs> Stick yeah. with it. Because... You hopefully you're storing God's Word in your heart. If you are reading from multiple translations on a regular basis, it's hard for any particular verse to stick because it sounds different in different translations. Uh, my, all the, the Bible is really sticky with me. I do not memorize passages, very rarely, and the things that I memorize I forget. But the things that I remember, I remember because they were sticky. Okay, and they just stuck. And then I used them more, and then they stuck better, you know, and it wasn't because I'm memorizing all these passages. Some people do that. It's wonderful. Thankfully, I haven't had to. And um, so, but I want, it's only sticky if it's, if if I read it again and again in the same words. If it's different words, it doesn't stick the same way because it's something else. And that's why I, I stick with—I'm going to be NASB, what, 93? Is that what I read, Amy? NASB 93? Maybe 78. It's even earlier. So I'm an old yeah, an old fogey with the NASB. Okay. Okay, well, b- yeah. Before I, before I get to a concluding question here, Mr. Kokel, because I want to be respectful of your time and the caller mm-hmm. who's waiting— um, you said something about the ESV. That's the one I started using about like a couple months ago. Uh-huh. 
Um, I've heard a lot of people object to the ESV saying it's very sexist in its translation, and it can, even though we're, we're still talking about the whole reform debate, but it can, the translators tend to lean more reformed in their interpretations. Is hmm. that is that deal changers, um, to, or like deal breakers for you? Well, or no. Do you still find ESV good? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that. It, every translation is going to have limitations to it, okay? Okay. That's one thing, okay? But you want a translation that is a—there's uh, a, different words to describe these. You have a um, dynamic equivalence, or you have—you um, want something as, as tight to the wording as possible. And uh, I think NIV is dynamic equivalence, and the direct correspondence or something like that is, is more like an NASB. And those read a little bit stiffer, people claim, because they are trying to be more precise and exact. Now, as far as the pronouns are concerned, uh, or the, the, the issue uh, that you raised a moment ago, that seems to me to re- reflect more of a cultural sensitivity. Um, a lot of people don't like that God is called He, for example. And so, well, that's what the way God refers to himself. We know that he's not a male, but that's the way he refers to himself. He doesn't refer to himself as mother. He refers to himself as father. I should clarify, Mr. Coco, what I mean by that is more um, women in submission to men. For example, there's a passage in Genesis where it's typically translated, um, um, your your, um, desire shall be for your husband, but ESV translates it as, your desires will be against your husband, but you must submit to him. Well, see, that's a question. That is a, a, that is a translation judgment call. Because okay. my understanding, too, of that passage, which says, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you, that's the NASB version. The for your husband means for your husband's authority and for your husband's position. It doesn't mean the woman's going to love or lust after her husband. It's talking about she wants her husband's position, and what the ESV did is tried to capture that in different language. Mm-hmm. So that's going to the question is whether the ESV is accurately characterizing the passage or the sense of the passage, all right? So so that's not a a deal-breaker for me. Um, I think it has a very good uh, reputation. It is a favorite of Reformed folk, but I don't know that's because it's somehow slanted in a Reformed direction. I'd have to look at the individual passages. Um, Okay. All right? So does that help for now? Yeah. As a finisher, Mr. Kokel, as I try to, like, read my Bible— in, in like a year or read it regularly. Do you suggest like reading passages at a time or books at a time? And do you just stick to like a certain plan? No, I, I try to stick to a plan, uh, but I, it's a year, it's a Bible in a year plan, but I, it takes me two and a half to three years to finish it because I don't right. read the full complement every day. But I do read through the book of Job, which I've just done. Now I'm reading through the book of Isaiah. And uh, I, I read through, you know, the Psalms and Proverbs and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think reading through a book is much better than jumping around because a book has an internal coherence that you want to be aware of and is important when you're looking at individual passages. And the illustration that's best, or the example that best illustrates that, is our conversation about John 10 a few moments ago. We can talk about John 10, but if you read from the beginning of John through to get to John 10, you realize, wait a minute, there's a bunch of echoes of this concept that is focused on in John 10 that starts in John chapter 5. You would notice that if you're just looking at smaller passages. So I think that's a good way to do it. 
But sometimes you just pick up a, a pericope, a, a section, like a paragraph of material, and then you, you dine on that for a little bit. Um, you know, there are different ways to do this. But as a rule, I think we should read it in the way it was given, in whole pieces. Paul wrote a letter to Timothy. He wrote two of them that we have, okay? Reading the whole letter is the way Timothy would have read it. And uh, and and I think reading it that way gives us a sense of the continuity of the piece, and, and that's, that's going to be a lot more beneficial to us as Bible learners. Make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Thank you so much, Mr. Coco. Thanks for letting me suck up the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Kate, all the best to you. Bye-bye now. All right. Thanks, Mr. Coco. Bye-bye. Okay, let's see. Um, is uh, number three next, Samus? I'm not sure. Who, where do I go? Number six is—oh, yeah. Oh, that's why it's flashing. Oh, that. Okay. Uh, this is Glenn in Calgary, Canada. Hello, Glenn. Hi, hi, Greg. How you doing? What's on your mind? Pretty good. Good. Deuteronomy. Uh, yeah, Deuteronomy, chapter 21. All right. And? It, 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 it sounds like in the passage that— uh, if you've conquered these people, you're allowed to go and rape the women. So I had right, let me just uh, asking me about this this morning. Yeah. Okay, let me just read the passage, 21.10 through 14. When you go out to battle against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take them away captive. And see among the captives a beautiful woman, and have a desire for her, and would take her as a wife for yourself, then you shall bring her home into your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails, and she shall also remove the clothes of her captivity, she shall remain blah, blah, blah in the house, and then you shall, she, you will be her husband, and she will be your wife. Okay? Um, now, uh, and then it says, verse 14, I guess, it shall be, if you are not pleased with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes, but you shall certainly not sell her for money, nor shall you, you shall not mistreat her, because you have humbled her. Okay, now, I, I'm not exactly sure. First of all, this is odd. Two 20th century years, acknowledged completely. I, yeah. I don't, even, even with 20th century years, I, I don't read anything akin to rape in this passage. Do you? Well, the woman, probably, like she's she's the woman of an, a of an enemy tribe, someone you just defeated in war. She's probably not going to be keen to just sleep with this guy who just killed her people. Wait, say that again. That last. She's not going to be keen to just sleep with whoever's killed her people. Well, that might be okay, but the but this isn't. And this is part of what makes these this passage odd to twentieth century year, years, but but um, arranged marriages were standard for you know tens of thousands of years. It seems certainly back in this time in the ancient Near East they were they were standard. And sometimes the way people got wives is through this way. Okay, this isn't the way we do it, but this is the way the ancients did it. Okay, but notice how what what the Deuteronomy is is um, is teaching here. You take a wife in this way. You take a woman in this way. You make her your wife. You don't mistreat her. Yes, it's not fun that the peop that you're married now to somebody who killed your people. But that happened all the time. And what happened in the process 
of killing the men was the women were raped and left behind. Okay? In this particular case, God is instructing them, if you want one of these women, you've got to make her your wife. Okay? Okay. You take her and make her. Now, is that against her will? Yeah, sounds like it. That's the way it was often done in those days. What God is doing is humanizing a brutal process, a brutal practice, rather. I suppose that's true, yeah. Uh, yeah, and that doesn't mean, look, at when Jesus was asked about divorce, he says, you know, one man with one woman for one flesh, one lifetime. God hates divorce. Well, then why did Moses do it? Allow it. Provide for a certificate. And Jesus said, because of your hard heart. So there are times we have things in the law that are not the perfect circumstance, but it's it's a um, it's an attempt to modify or manage a less than perfect circumstance because of the hardness of people's hearts. Yeah. So when you have conquests like this and the women are ravaged, Deuteronomy is saying, "Look, it. You're going to con- conquer these people. You're going to kill the men. They're the women. You like one of the women. You marry her, and you take care of her. You 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 get rid of the clothes of her captivity." She remains in your house. Let her mourn her father and mother a full month, and then she shall be your wife. You will be her husband. Okay? Do not mistreat her. I mean, this is kind of unheard of in terms of uh, human humanizing the enterprise given the ancient Near Eastern culture. And so we just have to—I think what we have to keep in mind is what God is doing is taking brutal circumstances— and controlling them, managing them, making them more humanizing than they already were. Not ideal, and certainly not what we do now, because we have different sensibilities here. But um, sometimes there's a mistake of transferring our sensibilities to another culture at another time in another era, okay? Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Okay, does that help? Okay. Hey, thanks so much for your patience. You were hanging on for a long time. Appreciate that. Okay. All righty. Bye. Bye-bye. Let's go to Wes in Georgia. Oops. There we go. (laughs) And there we go. Wes, welcome to Stand a Reason. Wes. That's number one. Did I do that right? No, I didn't. Oh, I got to push it harder. Wes. Oh, there we go. Uh, There we go. Can you hear me okay now? Yeah, it, it was the soft touch. That's why I didn't hang up my pass caller, and then I didn't put you on board. I'm just giving this little light touch thing, and it's not working. Got it. Um, okay, so I, I appreciate you taking the call tonight. I have a kind of a conundrum that I'm just I'm, I'm really, really been struggling with for a long time. I've been a Bible student for over 20 years. Mm. I went to seminary, have a bachelor's degree, have a master's degree in theology. Mm. Oh, good for you. And, um, well, you know— my, I went when I went to school. I had a professor that I was very fond of that was that always said made this statement that stuck with me. He said, "Look, don't take my word for it. Study it out for yourself. Don't mm-hmm. take anybody's word for it. Study it out for yourself." I've always done that and tried to do that. And um, the 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 thing that I'm running up against is my faith has weakened mm-hmm. um, since Bible school. Mm-hmm. Um, since learning the Bible, the more I study, and the more I study, the more the more problems I I get I, I get into, and okay. uh, the more my faith weakens. Um, so I don't want to. I, I even hesitate calling into a show like this where you have Christian listeners. I don't want to 
hurt anybody's faith. I don't want to hurt anybody's faith that's around me. Do you know of any type of, um, you know, apologetic style counseling where someone can talk to people in depth about Bible issues or apologetics based issues, not just kind of personal counseling? I don't have any type of, you right. know, personal issues. But. Right, right. Well, I, I, I don't, I don't know of such a um, discipline, so to speak, or or enter. There is, oh. Okay, Amy's looking it up. I, well, I I didn't know about it, but what usually happens in circumstances like this is people have doubts regarding certain things for particular reasons, and then isolating those particular challenges, and then working with someone either directly um, or uh, indirectly by what that person has written about that particular thing to um, hopefully resolve the doubt, to get it out in the yeah. open— See some things that maybe you didn't see, and then maybe that's that takes uh, takes care of the concern. That seems to happen a lot on this program, and and stand to reason it's not unique in that regard. There are other programs that take calls, and um, and there are other people who have concerns that then when they listen to a program or a podcast or they read a book or a chapter in a book that pertains directly to that, then this this resolves it, and then the the, the doubt or at least the doubt that is tied to that particular issue just begins to dissipate. And then the question is, what's the next issue? Do you have it for me, Amy? Yeah. Oh, it's up. She already put it up somewhere. All right. Uh, let's see. It says here, are you a Christian who is seriously struggling with doubts? Non-Christian seekers sincere questions about the Christian faith, or have you recently lost your faith and want to explore whether your reasons for loss of faith are really rational? Uh, we are here to help. Click the button below to make an appointment to speak with one of our team about your doubts about Christianity. So, uh, where did you get this from, Amy? She's going to—oh, it's up above. Okay, scroll it up. Oh, where's this? Oh, it's called Talk. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. It's called TalkAboutDoubts.com. TalkAboutDoubts.com. Now, I'd never heard of this, and I don't actually know— who they are, what their bona fides are, and you can check right. it out. Um, but whatever that organization—oh, John McClatchy, his ministry. Do you know John, Amy? You know of him. Uh, uh, it's a, not a familiar name to me, but John, Jonathan McClatchy. But this is the kind okay. of thing that happens on this program uh, lots of times regarding particular issues. Somebody mm-hmm. says, well, here's here's part of my problem, and they say, I, I, I'm really struggling with— this particular thing. And so it might be that I have some insight about that, and then when I talk about it with them a little bit, they say, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that. That's really helpful regarding that particular thing. So one down, what, ten to go, nine to go, whatever, you know. (laughs) But that's the way, you know, someone's, someone's faith gets sabotaged through an accretion of of doubts or questions that go unanswered, right? And the way to resolve those things is to reverse the process. And that is, well, what's right there front and center for you right now that's creating a problem? Something you read, something you heard, something you experienced. A lot of Christians doubt God's existence or God's love for them because of some tragic thing they experienced, okay? Well, the reason they do that is because they think that having a tragic experience is inconsistent with God loving them or even existing. Well, why would somebody think that? 
That's the question. Right. Right. There is no yeah. inconsistency there. When people realize, wait a minute, Jesus said this was going to happen, especially to Christians. In fact, Peter says, why are you surprised at this fiery ordeal among you as if something strange were happening, you know? I mean, he takes it that far. And so when people realize, for example, on this issue, that Christian suffering is not inconsistent with God's existence or Christianity being true, but rather is predicted in virtue of Christianity being true, that has a way not necessarily of easing their suffering or making them happier, but it does have a way of removing the doubt that is associated with the experience of suffering. So that's just one example. So let me ask you this, uh, Wes. We're just talking in very general terms here. Uh, Is there a particular thing that you think I might speak to, one of those things that that, uh, is troubling you that I might be able to, you know, reflect on a little bit that could help? I I appreciate that. I... um... I, it's not a, tra- it's not any type of a tragedy. It's not any type of anything like that. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, you know, um, and I'm, I'm okay with all that. It's more of an intellectual issue. Um, just digging into things and trying to, and having to, um, make, you know, reason after reason after reason. And, um, it's just, it's, it's just been whittling away mm-hmm. at my faith. Okay. Just piece by piece, you know. Sure. I don't know that it's any any one main issue. I I think that I think that a big thing for me was um, years ago I I, I had um, some serious issues with the lack of um, seeing God actually working in a tangible way or in a measurable way in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I I could very easily say. Well, God's done some amazing things in my life, um, and you know, give God the glory for all these wonderful things that mm-hmm. He's done in my life. Um, but at the same time, I, I that's that's very subjective, you know. And whereas I could praise the Lord for a miracle with my kids, at the same time I am, you know, helping do funerals for miracles that didn't happen for somebody else. Sure, sure, of course. And, um, you know, I'm just not seeing God doing anything with prayer that would show him active in the world in any way. See, I don't even like talking about this with Christians. No, I I appreciate that. Bringing up things like that. Right, right. And and it doesn't trouble me, and as far as I'm concerned as the host of the show, I'm fine with you saying this even in light of the listeners, because these are real kinds of challenges that people experience. I tell you something in my own life. Sometimes when you ask the question, why isn't God working in a measurable way in the world? That was the language you used. Um, I have... In certain issues in my life, I have um, I have the same kind of testimony. There have been, for many, many years now, things that are uh, very particular things that are very important to me that I have prayed very aggressively regarding, and others have prayed with me and for me regarding as well. Yet I don't see, as you put it, God working in a measurable way in that thing. And it's a mystery to me. 
Okay. However, on the other hand, I look at other stuff, say, for example, the things that are public about Stand to Reason, the, the progress and the things that have happened. We just had a documentary made about us. And when you look at the, the scope, the, 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 the scope of the history of the last 30 years, it's, it's really amazing. Okay. And so um, it, it's not unusual for God to be very obviously working in some ways, but not seem to be working at all in other ways. Okay, this is Job's thing. And I just read the whole book of Job, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Just read right through the whole thing. Not in one sitting, of course. That's like 40-some chapters. But this is the message. Why does God do what he does or not do what he doesn't do? And God says, the lesson there is, I'm I'm not talking. I know what I'm doing. Job, you don't know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. And that's all you need to know. Okay. Now, I realize in some circumstances that's not very helpful. All right. I, I get that. Uh, what, I, what I'm trying to say is what you're struggling with is what tons of people struggle with who, who, who have plenty of reasons to believe that God does exist and that Christianity is true, but then are assaulted in personal ways by the heavens seeming to be brass, all right? And sometimes what we end up doing to, to, um, to, to, to strengthen ourselves, our confidence, is we hitchhike on other people's—now, I'm going to be careful how I say this. I'll just say it, and I'll explain it. We hitchhike on other people's experiences. I don't mean we're hitchhiking on their feelings and their exuberance. We are hitchhiking on the things that happen in their lives— that are obvious, clear examples of God working in a measurable way in the world. And I want to give you one just from my own life. And I give you this one because when I first became a Christian, there was a whole bunch of things that happened that were unbelievable, amazing. And as I grew older in the Lord, these dramatic things happened less and less. Sounds strange. And it is strange in a way, but it's not unusual because lots of Christians have had a similar kind of experience. And uh, and that's because God is just choosing to work differently. But I had a friend, very close friend, who had a boyfriend, okay, who I was sharing Christ with the first few years that I was a Christian, okay? And I had been discipled, uh, and I was being discipled uh, by a guy named Craig, and his, his wife was named Kathy. Okay, and um, this friend of mine, her boyfriend, wasn't interested in Christ. She was a Christian, but he was just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Okay, she wanted him to meet my discipler. She wanted him to meet my discipler, Kathy and Craig. She thought that Kathy and Craig would have a big impact on him. Well, he never got around to it. The circumstances didn't lead to that, and he wasn't that motivated, whatever. But he had a job, and he was working in the Middle East. So he flew halfway around the world to the Middle East. And when he got to the Middle East, he continued his, completed his job and decided to just keep going and circumnavigate the world. And continuing flying east, which then brought him over Asia and then brought him over the Hawaiian Islands, and his stepbrother lived in the Hawaiian Islands. So he decided, I'll stop in Hawaii and I'll visit my stepbrother. So he stopped and visited his stepbrother. He walked into the house, said hi to his stepbrother. His stepbrother was entertaining guests. And guess who the guests were that he was entertaining? 
Craig and Kathy. Okay, now that's threading the needle, right? You could say, well, that's just, uh, what? <laughs> what? That's just, that's just a coincidence. Well, all right, but that was a pretty extreme coincidence. And it turned out they all had a conversation that night, and that's when he became a Christian. And that was 50 years ago. Okay, very powerful, obvious intervention of God based on prayers that were being prayed by a number of people for him. And then he circumnavigates the globe, lands... (laughs) And by the way, nobody knew about this relationship. Craig and Kathy were friends with his stepbrother, but they didn't know that he was the stepbrother of this person in question. Nobody knew. He lands there in Hawaii, gets picked up, goes to the house, and there they are. Okay. Now, there were a lot more things that happened, but I'm just citing one thing very quickly to show you that there are powerful things that God does according to His purposes in people's lives. We would like—I would like for Him to do more. (laughs) There are lots of things that I would like to be different than they are. I'm almost 50 years old as a Christian, and I'm thinking, wow, and this is all the further I've gotten— Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's fruit of the Spirit. Still working on some of those. Right, you know? Right. So that's that's discouraging, in a way, because I don't see progress where I want progress to be seen. However, that doesn't mean God's not at work. It may be that it's just not working on the things that I deem important at the moment, but He is working on, he is working on things that are are important for his larger plan. That's why I don't like that this phrase that God has a wonderful plan for your life. It's not about God's wonderful plan for our life. It's about our lives for his wonderful plan. Okay? I'll tell you one other thing that happened to me when I was in Eastern Europe, back before the Iron Curtain came down. And I'm not like a supernatural guy at all. I don't. That's, things don't happen to me. Okay? It's just not what I tra- how I traffic. I'm not a Pentecostal or anything like that. But we had to. This is 1976, and it was. We had to meet Christians in Bucharest when, when Romania was under Ceausescu. <laughs> okay, this is not a good situation, right? And we had information hidden away. I kept track of that of where we were supposed to go, and guess what? I lost it. And so what we had to do is figure out where is this place, and we spread out the the map of Bucharest in front of us. And we did our best to kind of recall something about where this place was, and we started walking streets. And I'm walking down one street, and I see a sidewalk along the edge of a building, and at the end of the sidewalk towards the alley, alley, there's a door coming out of the building with a plaque on the door. And something inside of me, I, I don't even know how to explain it, I just felt I need to go look at that plaque. And I walked down the sidewalk looked at the plaque, and the plaque had the name of the place that we were supposed to go to. It was the Theological Seminary. Okay, go figure. Oh, another coincidence, right? No, that was the hand of God. So there are times— Do you feel like the hand of God was guiding you down that street? Do you feel like—I mean, so— I didn't feel it. I didn't feel it. The only thing I had was I wasn't like felt like, oh, God's leading me here or there. I'm just walking around. Right. And I'm then when I like, saw you know, the plaque, like I said, how I got God is actually 
working. Uh, that I don't know. I can't tell you. I, I can't tell you, but what I'm giving you is the the details of what took place. So it's obvious, I hope to you, that something supernatural was going on here. God was working in that circumstance to supernaturally place me in front of that door when I, in Bucharest, the capital of Romania, when I had lost the information regarding the location of that place. So, uh, now, I don't have a lot of stories like that, but that's my story. And there are other people who have lots of stories like that. I don't have many. Maybe you don't have many. Sometimes we take encouragement from other people's stories like that, that show that God is clearly at work. I can't explain that away. Well, that's just a coincidence. Um, And I wish it happened more in my life. But this is where the age that I am as a Christian, almost 50 years, you know, it's trust and obey. That's the, that's the lesson. It isn't being led around by signs and wonders. It's taking what I know and then following what I know to be true and obeying God in the midst of that. <clears throat> now, you may be in a little different situation. And I can understand that. You're not sure what you know. And it's because one of them is you haven't seen God working in a measurable way in the world. Okay. Sometimes what I suggested is sometimes we have to look at how he has worked in a measurable way in someone else's life that can't be just simply dismissed as coincidence. And that reminds us that God is still alive and well and doing his work, even though in our own lives, just like in Job's, things are not going the way we planned. So there's, there's a, just a mini sermon for you. Okay, Wes, I got to move on. And I know you have probably more questions, and you are welcome to call me anytime you want on the show and bring up a thing that we can chat about a little bit, and maybe I'll be an encouragement to you. I'd like to do that. Thank you for the time, and thank you for the resources. Well, I'll check oh. that. I appreciate it. Okay, Wes, all the best to you. hope to hear from you again, all right? Have a good night. Okay, bye. Wow. Thank you, Wes, really, genuinely. Let's move forward. I got just about 10 more minutes to go. So let's talk with M. Is that right, M? Uh, yeah, I'd rather not give my name. Oh, that's all right. That's all right. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just um, thinking, wasn't there a 007 character with just one letter? Wasn't that M? Was that M? I think, anyway. So what's up, know. M? Um, my question is something that's been going on with my wife and I. I would like to help know, how would you if at all, respond to someone who says, stay in your own lane when writing. Namely, you can't even write a fantasy book that has elements of a different culture. My wife wrote a fantasy book that has elements of a different culture that she's not a part of in it. And the publisher, it's a very small one, uh, posted some things online. And immediately, they started getting attacked. It's uh, with yeah. people saying, you need to stay in your own lane. You're ripping off this culture. You're basically stealing from all these people. You need to be silent. Yeah, and okay. they mm-hmm. had to pull all the things they had posted online. And I also know your broadcast. A lot of people listen to your broadcast, hence why I don't want to give my name, really. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm wondering, like, my initial reaction, because I've been listening to you for over a decade, is respond. But then I'm worried, is that when it comes to responding to people online, is that just basically like smacking a hive of bees or something? I right. Okay. Let, let me give you a response to that. Here, my suggestion is to ignore those people. I think you should just ignore them. What they're c- talking about is cultural appropriation. 
they think when you write about something from a culture that's not your own, that you're stealing from that culture. If you're a gringo and make Mexican food, you're stealing from Mexican culture. That's the view of cultural appropriation. And I, I, I don't know why I should ever take that seriously. You, you can't, I mean, how, how is it theft? How is it that nothing is being diminished in Mexican culture when my my own wife, a gringo, a a a, a Dane, <laughs> makes tacos? What's so so when somebody complains about something silly like that, and it is silly, I just ignore it. It it's not even worth the time to push back because. These folk are not going to listen to anything you have to say. And by the way, I bet you if you talk to them for a little while, it would be clear that they are doing the same kind of things in other ways. All right? Um, They are are, uh, imposing their views on you in ways that would be inappropriate even by their own standards. So this this is the kind of thing that just drives me nutty. It's people that are looking to create a problem. That would be my assessment, okay? They're looking to create a problem. It used to be when you did this that 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 people took it as a uh, as a compliment. So when I go I live in Southern California and our family loves Mexican food. We eat Mexican food at least 3 times a week. In fact, I'm having it tonight. Leftovers from three nights ago. Okay, that's what I'm looking forward to having when I go home. We eat Mexican food. Okay, when we go into a Mexican restaurant, I say, Hola, buenas noches. You know, uh, when I ask for the check, I say, La cuenta por favor. You know, I want the check. Or I, I can order, you know, dos, uh, <laughs> dos frijoles or something like that. Why? Because I'm trying to enter into their cultural experience a little bit using their language, and they are always thrilled when I do that. According to this other idea, oh, I'm stealing from them by saying, Hola, que tal, como esta? Really? No, I'm being polite, for goodness sake. Why would you find something ugly in something beautiful? That's what they're doing. Yeah. Okay. It's it's just rough to... Yes, and and it, look, if you're going to, your wife wrote the books, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm a writer too. You're always going to have people that are unhappy with your writing, and they're mm-hmm. going to talk about it, or your speaking, or your point of view. You know what I do? Mm-hmm. I don't read it. <laughs> I don't listen to that stuff. Okay. I don't read the people that are crabbing at me. Oh, maybe I'll take a little look, and to see, but I'm not going to focus in on that. I want to focus in on the, the people I helped, not the people who are crabbing about it. There are plenty of trolls out there. If you're a writer, there are trolls out there that are just, they're not going to read your book. They're just going to crab because they disagree with your general point of view, and then they put down the book they haven't read. They're not interacting with the particulars, oftentimes. They're just crabbing. Okay? So those are the kind of people you just kind of ignore. Proverbs has, says a lot about those people, you know? They, Proverbs calls them fools. And when you cross them, they either laugh at you or they rage. And I think that this is my sense that this is what's happening with your wife's writings. And I'm sorry to hear it because I 
I know what writing takes, and your wife, I'm sure, worked very hard on creating something valuable, a written piece, and then to have some screwball, some knucklehead, make a big fuss about it and saying that, how dare her doing this? She's stealing. Really? It just drives me nuts. So, just encourage her, tell her to keep on keeping on, be a student of her craft, do a good job, and ignore the knuckleheads. Okay. All right, buddy? All right. Thank you, and thank you for your time. Oh, and thank you also for your new book. I really enjoyed going through it. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Thanks, Sam. I appreciate it. Take care now. Okay. Back to double back to double oh seven. All right, good. Okay, now we got Sarah in Oceanside, and we just got about five minutes. Sarah, I'm sorry, four and a half. No, no worries. Okay, okay. so how do I? Or I can tell you how I respond, but I'm just looking for support. Yeah. Um, when people they know that things are drastically different with your life now that you're a Christ follower. However, they're still thinking in worldly terms, so they see that you are more. They say that you were more happy, basically, when you were sinning, because you were in a better physique, you were, you know, out and about and doing things with more people, but your focus has changed. So I'm trying to say, yes, it's a good thing that I'm a Christ follower, and they're saying, you don't seem happy, because our definition of happy is different as a Christian. Yes, uh-huh. Well, that's part of the answer, I think, that you give to them. What Whatever you mean by happy is probably different than what I mean, okay? I mean, this is something you could say to them, okay? And, and, and incidentally, I relate entirely with the idea that that when you become a Christian, things can get a lot more difficult for you, not better, all right? I had a, a friend who said that before he was a Christian, he never struggled with temptation. Now, the point is, he never struggled with it. He gave into it. Now, as a Christian, he struggles with it. It's a fight. It's a battle. Okay? And we are, like, behind enemy lines. And in this world, you have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world, is what Jesus said. So, it's part of the program to have, when you become a Christian, that your life is going to be more difficult in many ways than it is for those who are going with the flow. Now, long-term, virtue will out. We develop virtue, and uh, I, I remember uh, Arndt, uh, Larry Arndt, who runs Hillsdale, and he, was, he said, my children once said, I want to be happy. Dad, I just want to be happy. And he said, you can't, lear- you can't be happy, honey, until you learn to be good. Because virtue is what's going to give the genuine eudaimonia flourishing, the happiness that is what human beings are supposed to experience. Not whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it, you know, um, uh, 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 sex, drugs, and rock and roll, yay, party right. hardy. Yeah, that's dead. that's a dead end. It feels good in the moment, but it's the dead end. It is the virtuous well, life. Also that's, said, uh, the consequences can be delayed, and I might, you know, sometimes I still have to deal with my consequences. Even now, it doesn't mean they disappear. That's right. Well, that's right. And you have new consequences, in a sense. You have the consequence of living a virtuous life in a non-virtuous world. 
and uh, and you're you're swimming against the tide, so to speak, and that m- makes for difficulty. Peter talks about the suffering and difficulty that the various trials that we experience that we have to persevere through. That's the first chapter of First Peter, and First uh, Peter has helped me a lot because of difficulties and challenges that I've faced in my own life, swimming upstream in a variety of different ways, and having to learn how to walk with Christ in the midst of that. Does that mean that I always have a big smile on my face? No, not me. <laughs> that isn't my personality. But um, but we are in, enjoined to rejoice because of the long-term outlet, outlook. And this is what Paul talks about in Second Corinthians chapter 4, the last couple verses of the chapter. You know, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Now, of course, in one sense, it doesn't feel momentary. It's been years. It certainly doesn't feel light. It's killing us. Paul is looking at the long haul. He's looking in an eternal perspective, okay? And um, that's what he's inviting us to focus in on. But notice that this presumes the hardship that Christians endure living in a fallen world where they are no longer at home. They're at enemies, in a sense, with the world, and John talks about this in First John. So uh, I don't count it as a liability at all that you're not as happy now as a Christian from the other person's perspective as you used to be. I've had the same thing said about me as well. We understand the world in a very different way now, and we're facing a very different set of circumstances. When we're on the right path, we're going to experience hardship, and that's not always fun to do, but it's the right thing. I hope that helps, Sarah, and I'm glad we had a chance to chat a little bit before that music came up. There it is. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.